0: Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, everyone. Hi, it is good to be back. We had uh, the wedding first, so uh, a lot of you were there. And so that was Logan and Maylani. They got married. That kept us busy for a little bit. That was very, very exciting, and then we went off on vacation, and uh, we were in Guam with family, Uh, and so literally Guam, the island, that's where Cheryl's from, and not like just some distant place, like actual Guam, and uh, so uh, we had a a nice uh, time, refreshing time, great to catch up with family uh, that we had not seen for many, many years, Uh, and we realized that some of you have started attending uh, over the last few weeks. And so I'm Robert. I am one of the pastors here at the church because we haven't met. And I look forward to getting to know you and meet you. Uh, and there are a bunch of faces that uh, I haven't uh, yet, I don't yet recognize or get to know. And so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but uh, I do belong here. I'm not a guest, just in, in case uh, any of you are wondering. Uh, but I haven't been teaching for a few weeks. And I think that might explain a little bit as to why uh, this was such an odd week for me. I was having a really hard time getting started on uh, on on the, the message for today. And I'm not sure why. I mean, sometimes when you cover a passage that is as unbelievably uh, powerful and central as the one that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks, sometimes that just gets me a little bit rattled and I have a hard time kind of digging in and getting going. Uh, but uh, it could be that I was just coming off of jet lag or whatever, but I was looking for inspiration. And and so uh, it, when I was thinking about the passage and what was going on, I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I, what are the top, like 100 songs right now, and so I went to Billboard and some other places, and I was like, you know, what, what's going on out there that people are responding to? Right, this is our this is a this is our art, and and so you know, what are the poets saying, and 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 what are people what are people listening to? And so uh, I started to uh, listen and uh, read some of the lyrics, and uh, that was something. And so anybody want to guess as to what one of the major themes of of most of the top songs are? Anyone want to guess? Who said that? Who's willing to say that louder? Uh That was under your breath. All right, what, what do you think it's about? It's about relationships. It's about, you can't trap me. It's a. It's about love and lust and lost love and spite for lost love. It's about relationships that we didn't have or we had that we wanted but 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 got broken and and it's all about this kind of stuff. Post Malone, he's, he likes you. That's good to know. Uh, Kate Bush is making a deal with God and running up a hill for you. Harry says it's just us, just us. You read about that. You. There was a Future and Drake, they need some chemical help to express their feelings uh, in order to wait for you. Uh, Bad Bunny, there was a song, Mi Porto Bonita, which um, I I don't actually know what it's about because the song is in Spanish, so I assumed it was about a sexy woman. Um, I I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. Am I allowed to broad brush entire cultures? I guess that's not politically correct anymore. All right, so anyway, I shouldn't have said that, but what, what is the song about? Anyone know? Yeah, it's about a sexy woman, uh uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Pop culture, literature, music, advertising, they all dance around this theme of love or at least some understanding of what love is to them. Why? It's because our hearts crave to have it and they crave to give it we just long for it in the deepest parts of our soul and yet we can't quite seem to get it right right we have lovers i mean i don't have i don't have lovers i'm not saying that i'm saying we actually i have a lover a, i'm married to her but it's like anyway you know I, we this is a thing a term we use but we really shouldn't call them lovers we could call them sexers it would be more accurate but we don't because, of course, we, we want something more than that, right? We're not, when we talk about making love, we're not talking about creating an environment where people who are isolated and alone are, are feeling encouraged, like we're building love, we're making love into something that is tangible and, and, and something people can experience that people need. We don't, we don't mean it like that at all. We, 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 we do this thing where we kind of bring them together, and maybe that's not what you do. Maybe instead... You know, you don't equate love and sex as one thing. But we will often fall for the idea that love is simply an emotion, an emotion that we can kind of fall into or fall out of. As in, oh, my goodness, you know, I, I don't know what happened in my marriage. Like, I just, I, we just, we fell out of love. We fell out of love. Like, like, like I was trying to get on the subway and I tripped. And, I, and that was it. I fell out of love. I don't know what happened. Or people explain it as to what's going on and why they're leaving their family and their other responsibilities. And they're like, well, I just, I fell in love with a coworker. Like, I don't know what happened. It just like seized me, it grabbed me. So we make this idea that, that love is just, it's nothing but this emotion that must be obeyed at all costs. I think this is also ironic because we get to use these words so, so flippantly, right? So, you know, we lo- I love my wife and I love Jesus and I love pizza. And I love my dog, and I love that new iPhone, and I love it. It's like, wait a second, how, what does the word even mean at this point? When, when we start using it in so many different ways, like it's, it's, it's difficult for us. And, it, and if that isn't bad enough, even if we really want to try to get a genuine handle on what love really is all about, we end up finding out that many haven't really experienced it in a genuine way in a sustaining way. And if you haven't experienced it, that means you are likely going to struggle practicing love in the way that the Bible describes. A research study said that there are 25% of people who have no one that they can confide in. 25%. And if you remove immediate family from that, the number jumps to 50% of people that have no one they, they can genuinely confide in. We don't know how to love well. Albert Schweitzer, he's a philosopher, humanitarian, 1950s, a Nobel Peace Prize uh, recipient. He, He famously said that we are all so much together, but we are all dying of loneliness. That was the 50s. Imagine today with social media and with likes and friends and and what would he do when he looked out and said, we are more connected, we are more together than we have ever been. And yet, you know what's going up and to the right. It's not the economic indicators. That's not what's going up and to the right right now. It's rates of loneliness. They've skyrocketed since the 50s. Generalized anxiety disorder, up and to the right. Overdoses, depression, suicide, off the charts. We don't love well. Consider the current political climate. We've watched the Christian community get fractured along American political ideologies. If any group in America should have been immune. It should have been those practicing genuine Christian love. And yet, we handled it so poorly and continue to. And I think what this means is that Christians ought to double down and we really ought to explore and understand and wrestle with and put into action the biblical teachings of genuine Christian love because I think we need it now more than ever and I think few descriptions of love in all of literature in all of art in pop culture will approach the beauty and the challenge of love as the Bible does and I think most who will take a look at it most who are willing to take a look at it would agree and so for this morning and for next week, this is part one of two parts, we're going to get to spend some time drinking in this creme de la creme of the biblical challenge of love. So we have been in and out of 1 Corinthians since September which is, I'm sure, it's got to be the longest teaching series that we have ever done at Beacon. We started in 1 Corinthians, we were like, hey, I think we're just going to go verse by verse straight through the book and we'll see where where it takes us. And a couple breaks here and there, but we've been studying this book since chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to today, and we've been in it for quite some time. And uh, there is a sense in which the whole of this letter really has been building to this chapter. It is considered by many to be one of the most profound descriptions of a distinctly Christian love ever penned. Now, I want to go back because it has been a while since we did some of the review, and we might have forgotten a little bit about the setting, the cultural background of uh, of this letter. And so where it began was at the very beginning in 1 Corinthians, it said, to the church of God in Corinth. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And so New Testament letters, for those that aren't familiar with it, are often named after the city that the author was writing to. And in this case, it was the Apostle Paul. He was writing to the great and ancient city of Corinth. Corinth is in southern Greece and so you know if you got the boot of Italy over here and then you got Turkey over here this is Corinth right here that's Crete the island and so that kind of frames a little bit and this was really quite an incredible city. I, there's this animation that uh, some artists had made. I think some of you, we've shown it, and you've seen it before, but just to give you an idea of what they envisioned the city of Corinth was like, because it spanned this incredible geographic area. It had two distinct ports. It had a land bridge that went between these ports, and it made it this incredible center for commerce, And so we've got all of this, all different parts of the city that uh, are even now well documented in the archaeological record. It was this wealthy hub of international trade. Does that sound familiar to you guys here living in New York? They controlled this incredible asset of land, a transfer point between Asia and Europe they had parks, they had government buildings, they had an entire region of the city dedicated just to commerce. And that industrial area was, it had all sorts of different industries. Metallurgy was certainly one of them. They were famous for it. Medicine, textiles, all very popular and all very lucrative exports. And this helped make Corinth a very cosmopolitan kind of a city. It was made up of people from all walks of life, different socioeconomic strata, different ethnicities, different religions. That made it very pluralistic. They had countless temples, many different gods. They had a a very vibrant uh, entertainment scene. With restaurants and with theater, and and uh, they had a they had their own version of, of Broadway and and New York eats, but it was Corinth eats, and and you'd go visit all of these swanky kinds of places to enjoy. Uh, the kinds of meals that were from around the whole of the world. They also were a center of athletics. So they had their Yankees and their Mets and a whole lot of other teams as well. In fact, the Isthmian Games, they were held every two years. They were like a mini Olympics and they were held right there in Corinth. So people traveled from all over the world to go to Corinth and spend some time there. So the city was exciting and it was cultured and it was it was busy and it was filled with this great diversity of people from all over the Roman Empire. And the people of Corinth, they were not aristocratic. So they weren't part of that royalty scene. These were more like the pull yourself up by your bootstraps kinds of people. They were there looking to make a buck, make a name for themselves, um, maybe even Uh, try to increase their social standing and leave something to their kids and to the next generation. And that made for a real cutthroat kind of competitive environment. So if you were an upwardly mobile kind of a person, you wanted to be in the city of social climbers, Corinth was a great bet. So it was a lot like New York and a lot like Long Island. And the Christians there were pretty awesome. They were incredibly talented. They were hardworking. They were sacrificial. They gave generously to the missions trips that their kids and other people would go on. They would do all the kinds of things that made Christians look like Christians. And of course, they knew it. They knew it, and that arrogance and that lack of awareness of the people around them led to tons of problems in the church, tons of problems, and that's what we've been studying for months now, all of these different issues and conflicts and problems. They had actually written to Paul, and they said, hey, Paul, help us out. We got all these things going on, and so Paul did address a number of their issues but he wove a different thread through the whole of the letter, something they most certainly didn't ask about because they never would have believed that this was a problem that they, as Corinthian Christians, would ever face. They wanted a little help here and a little help there, and Paul goes after something deeper. He goes after the root of the issue that was causing all of these other problems for Corinth. And so he did. He set out to deal with a bunch of these questions but surprised them with where it was all heading. Now... Again, I mentioned the whole of the letter really was building to this chapter. And even within this chapter, there is a center. And even within that center, there is a crux that helps explain the rest of the letter. And so there was a time when liberal scholars, they would look at this incredible poem, this love poem that's at the center of 1 Corinthians 13... Uh, which isn't supposed to simply be used at weddings. It's fine there, but it's way, way more than that. And, and so, and, and scholars would say, look, this thing is so beautiful and it's so poetic, and it was just so rudely dropped into the middle of this discussion on spiritual gifts. Paul must have known the poem from someone else and just was looking for a place to drop it in. Nowadays, that's going to be a completely rejected idea because more uh, diligent kinds of studies show that almost every single word that Paul used, he has woven before in his letter, or will weave it into the letter in what's yet to come. And so we actually get to see that structurally, everything was pointing to this chapter. Like grammatically, the way he, he wrote it was designed to focus everyone's attention on this chapter. And so I'm going to geek out for just a moment because I uh, haven't been around in a while and, I, and I, I want to geek out a little bit. And so here we go. So follow, follow with this because this is kind of fun for people that are a little bit nerdy. Uh, and if you're not nerdy, I'm, I'm sorry. You check your Facebook. But, uh, so chapter 11 to chapter 14. This is the flow of the argument. Chapter 11, we already looked at it. It says men and women and it talks about leading worship among men and women. Chapter 14 hits that same theme. Women and men in worship. Chapter 11 talks about order in worship. For this, this was the sacrament of communion that we studied a couple weeks ago. Chapter 14 is about order in worship. Chapter 12, spiritual gifts. Chapter 14, spiritual gifts. They call this ring composition, it was very, very common in the ancient Near East, and it was super common in letters like this that Paul wrote, and because they didn't have like highlighting and and bolding and underlining and all that kind of stuff, this is the way that they would highlight it, and so largely, the way you would ring, you would understand a ring composition is you would look at the outer ring, and you would say, wait, so this whole section is going to be about how Christians, how men and women interact in the community of faith. That's what the whole of this section is going to be about, and so he's going to talk about our worship, and he's going to talk about the use of our spiritual gifts, but we have to understand all of those conversations by the center of it. What does the center point to? And in this case, it points to the love poem. So when you get to here and you talk about order and worship, the question isn't going to simply be, well, how do you do communion? The question is, how do men and women together in the worshiping community of faith do communion in a way that reflects Christian love? That's the way to interpret the structure of ring composition. Same thing with the spiritual gifts. When you use your spiritual gifts, is it just about spiritual gifts? No, it's about spiritual gifts and how you use them in Christian love. Now, within this ring composition, this is where it gets a little bit geeky, there is another ring composition. This is how sophisticated Paul's structure was. uh, Chapter 12, verses 1 to 31, he talks about spiritual gifts. We saw that in the earlier ring. But then there's more nuance. Going deeper into it, he talks about how love and the spiritual gifts interact, which he talks about here again. So this feels repetitive when you're reading it, when you don't understand that he has structurally built it to point to his definition of love, which is at the center of the center of the section. But super geeky now. That section also has a ring composition within it. So this is like inception level stuff. We're like so deep in now, it's hard to get out. So we got to just keep pushing through. So... In 12.31, he talks about continuing in zeal. 14.1, he talks about continuing in zeal. He's tying these things together. So he is saying, I want you to be passionate. I want you to be zealous for these things. What things? How we use our spiritual gifts in love. Because he talks about that here and here. Then he does this super cool thing. He describes love by what it is. Here he describes love for what it is. And here he describes love by what it's not. Scholars look at this and they go, well, that's depressing. Why would you tell me what love is not? Well, because of his audience. He's writing to the Corinthians who had long lost this. They had forgotten what Christian love was like. and They weren't living in those kinds of sacrificial ways. And even within this, which I just couldn't do another chart on for you, but there are seven definitions that he gives us that love is not. We're going to look at them next week. Seven means there's one in the middle. Anyone want to guess what the middle one is? Love is not self-seeking. So in the center of the whole of the letter, in the center of that, is a description of love in the church and the community of faith and in the center of that is a description of love and in the center of that is a description of what love is not and in the center of that which is the center of the whole of the book is that love does not seek its own. If you want to know what everything else is about in this letter, in fact, if you want to know what is one of the great threads of Christian theology and the Christian ethic and how we ought to live, it's that love does not seek its own. The center of the center of the center of the center of it. It's hard to imagine Paul trying to explain it any other way. Any other way. Now, we jump into the text proper. The very beginning of chapter 13, it's actually chapter 12, verse 31, but we added the Chapter in verse markings later, that's not in the original. And so this really kind of belongs with, with chapter 13. It says, now eagerly desire, now zealously desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. This phrase for most excellent way uses a word that talks about the high road, the mountain pass from one place to another. But it's the difficult pass. It's the mountain pass. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to show you what, what we would call, you know, the higher road. This is, the, this is the way that you, if you want to know what it means to live the Christian life, I'm going to show you the higher road, which he does. He says to them, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So look at this. He's saying, if I speak, if I have, if I have, if I give, if I give. So this is all of the stuff that you get to do. If I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this. He's saying, it's nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing. It's a clamoring mess. There's an Arabic uh, Christian scholar who studies a lot in Syria, and there's a city there that he actually found this area that they still do metallurgy like they did in Corinth. And so in the center of town, there's like 200 tradesmen, craftsmen, and in these little huts, maybe 10 by 10, they're all making their version of brass tchotchkes bowls and utensils and things that people come far and wide to buy at this massive area. He says, the banging of all of this, that's hammering of the brass, it is so deafening in the middle of this little area that you have to put your ear two inches from the craftsman's mouth for him to yell his prices to you. You have to you put your mouth to his ear. You have to yell it because it is such a deafening cacophony. When he talks about a clanging cymbal, that's what he's referencing. He's referencing what every Corinthian would know, that, the, that the, at the center of their commerce was all of this banging and clanking, and, and it was just a, this cacophonous sort of a noise that you, it would make it so you couldn't even think. And he's going, that's what it's like. You might do all of these great things, but it's just a noisy mess like a harsh, ancient megaphone. And so we do all of these different kinds of things. And, you know, we look at it and you say, you know, in our lists, it's easy to see the negative stuff. But if you notice Paul's list, it, it isn't the negative stuff at all. And so, he, you know, you might say, hey, listen, I've got really serious wisdom. And, you know, that must account for something. And Paul's like, yeah, actually, it, it's a big, big zero. It, you're like, all right, all right, I get it, but you know what about my what about my wisdom plus my my sacrifice? That's an equation that's got to work. And Paul's like, actually, it's it's nothing. It's just it's a big zero. And you're like, okay, okay, but wait, what if I have what if I have wisdom and I have great sacrifice and what if we multiply all of that by maybe I don't know maybe my generosity. My giving, and, and maybe we, we we kind of double down on that and we, we make it and Paul's like, hey man, that's pretty awesome. You're a pretty impressive person. Everything on the outside looks like you've made it because you're living in all of these great ways and you're doing all of these amazing things. Could he have could he have painted it with any more clarity to say, guys, you just don't understand? You might have everything that looks good on the outside, but if you don't have love, it amounts to nothing, perhaps even worse than nothing. How could that possibly be? We look at it and we go, how can you have everything and still end with nothing? And you see, what? so I was, I'm growing up, I was in New Jersey, that's where I was born and raised, and my in those, in those years, I really wanted to be an architect. And so I had a picture on my wall, justification for higher education, had the big house on the mountain, had all the fancy cars. And, and pretty much I wanted to do was, was make a lot of money, and then I wanted to get married, and then I wanted to make a whole lot more money, and I wanted to have some kids, and wanted to make a lot more money, and I wanted to have a big house, and then I wanted to make a lot more money, and then I wanted to... So there was a theme running through what I wanted, right? And so it was house, it was cars, it was the life that we all... And you know... Everyone in my life, even many of the people in my church life, thought this was a great pursuit. We had and have so imbibed the culture that we don't even question these kinds of things anymore. And you say, well, I'm not about all that. I'm not about a big house and the money. And no, 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 what you might be about is making sure that your kids get into the great school district so the house matters. That's the only reason the house matters, because it's for the kids. Well, that's what your wisdom is telling you. You see, without love, without Christ's kind of love, we're never going to understand the kind of self-sacrificing that Jesus is calling us to. I'm not saying that those things are necessarily bad. You might say, well, I'm not into that, but you know what? All I want is is a safe and healthy retirement. So as long as I've got some money in the bank and I, you know, I stay healthy, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And you're like, oh, that's good because, you know, I, I run a lot. I'm, I'm staying super fit. I'm eating well. And, and then there's nothing wrong with that except maybe the running. That might be sin, but I'm not sure. But what, what we look at it, you so we have all of these values. And I think what Paul is saying here, listen, these might be good things. They might not be good things. But how will you ever know if you're not an expert in Christian love? If you don't understand this most essential part, the very center of the center of it that love is not self-seeking, how can we possibly know that everything else that we're pursuing isn't for wrong motive? But it's for my family. That's someone else. Is it? Really? Well, I'm doing this, I'm investing this. I yes, I'm, I'm, I, I'm gonna get fame because of these things that I'm pursuing. My name will be in lights and all that, but that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for the broader community. Okay, maybe. I think Paul's gonna say, let's run this through the grid of Christian love first before we know whether or not this amounts to nothing. He highlights it again and again. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men, but do not have love, Resounding gong, clanging cymbal. But do not have love, I am nothing. But do not have love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. If there were something for you to remember from today, that would be my encouragement. Without love, I gain nothing. Nothing. Before Paul would describe for us the wonders and the beauty of love, he wanted to make sure we knew this, that the rest of our pursuits, even the good stuff, even the stuff you do for the kingdom, even the stuff that you think you're doing as part of your Christian mission, it can still amount to nothing if it is not infused with and marked by and woven through with love. What I really, what's, what's so powerful about this is that we are being challenged in this way, but we, he is challenging us in the most redemptive and hopeful way possible. You know, we hear this poem in, that we're going to look at next week, and it's like, man, that's so beautiful. You know what the Corinthians would have heard? They would have heard a list of things that Paul has already told them they have neglected or have forgotten. This was a fierce rebuke to the Corinthians. And so at one moment, it ought to cause in our hearts repentance where we say, Lord, that's not who I want to be. I want to be at the very center. I want to be at the very center of the center of your heart. So let me be there. And so it, it ought to bring an attitude of repentance to us. So there's the challenge. But the beauty in it is that once you read through his description, you go, why would I want anything else? Why would I not want to be that kind of a person and live among those kinds of people? Why would I not want to be part of creating a community, of creating a family, of 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 people who will live these kinds of ways. Why would I not? And so, yes, there is a challenge and there is a repentance, but there is also the promise that this is what you were made for. It's so interesting because when you when when you think about it, he's saying this is the high road. We're going over the mountain pass here. So you know what happens on the high road? It's difficult. Not everybody can make it. Not the paths are not well worn up there. The air gets a little thin. Sometimes it it feels like you can't quite breathe, and you're you're tripping on your these rocks, and you're twisting your ankle. And in the midst of love, you know who most often gets hurt? It's the people practicing this kind of love. Because we've been more exposed, but we follow a Savior who showed us that that is the way of Christian love. And so, yes, it can get challenging and it can get difficult, but this is what we were made for, to travel that mountain pass. I love it because when we started in the letter, Paul said to those sanctified, those already made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. You're already these people, now live it. This is an encouragement because God, he said will keep you firm to the end. You will be blameless. God is faithful. How is it that we will be these kinds of people and how will it be that we will be these kinds of, because we are are made new. The waters of baptism are a symbol that we have been made new, that the old man is dying within us and he's being replaced with a new one who is marked by Christian love. We gotta get out of the way of the spirit. We have to respond to the promptings, the challenge in our hearts to repent of the ways that we are still self-centered even in the way we do our good things so that we can remember that without love, we gain nothing. Would Would you pray with me? Father, we are entering into this most beautiful of texts. And Lord, what a challenge it is to us. What, what a way to, to, to read through this and to look and to say, oh my goodness, this is, this is who we were meant to be. And then quickly we look in that mirror and we go, but I'm not that person. So much of what I do is still self-centered. So much of what I do is still self-focused. Even the good things that I do, Lord, I do in hopes of gaining accolades or security or wealth or something, Lord, other than what you want for me. And quickly, Lord, we can get overwhelmed and yet this is what we were made for. And this is where we will find our true selves and you've given us the promise of the spirit to be in us, to dwell in us. You've given us the example of Christ who endured such great hardship for the promise that was set before him and showed us the way of Christian love. And Lord, I want that for myself and for each person here, we pray it that you would make us more and more and more transformed into the image of Jesus, that we might walk in Christian love knowing that we have nothing without it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.